Lockhart Stadium was once home to the Strikers and to the Fusion, but now Inner Miami, Jorge Mas, David Beckham says this dilapidated, overgrown park will now be the first home of Inner Miami CF. David Beckham and Jorge Mas, the owners of Inter Miami CF, emerged from the weeds at Lockhart Stadium with a big announcement for their MLS team. We're here to announce today that, you know, we will play our first two seasons of MLS here at the new stadium uh, located here in Lockhart in the city of Fort Lauderdale. It may look like a post-apocalyptic scene from a movie with hints of past soccer teams still hanging around, but their hope is to transform all of this into a home, not just for the MLS team, but a subdivision USL squad, as well as an academy for 160 to 200 young prospects. It's all about the academy and the future of the kids uh, in this great city. Today is a groundbreaking day for us because we hope to announce and hope to have the support to bring our academy, the heart and soul of our organization, uh, to South Florida. Speaking with Jorge Moss after the press conference, he says plans in Miami and the Mel Reese site are going ahead as planned, with a target date of 2022 in mind. But until then, soccer goes back to its South Florida roots with more than just a makeover. But more importantly, um, also activating this site with uh, an 18,000 seat brand new stadium. It will not be refurbishing the site. It's a location that we've been dreaming about. It's a location that we feel that gives the kids, the community, uh, a real opportunity to live their dreams. The renovations won't go forward until the city of Fort Lauderdale officials vote on their plans next Tuesday, but they need somewhere to play, and they say it helps make Inter Miami a South Florida team, not just Miami. Might need a little bit of a trim, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I think that like Jorge said, you know, we will be in Miami, um, and our commitment is also to South Florida. Cleanup and demolition will take some time. They're going to have to remove all of this stuff. It's going to take about 60 to 75 days. They hope to break ground in July. That means this place would be open sometime February in 2020. At Lockhart Stadium, Mike Cunha, CBS4 News. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, you know, as the old Chinese proverb says, may you live in interesting times. Hi, my name is Tim Hanlon, and uh, this is Good Seats Still Available. It's the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. It's uh, our little uh, journey each and every week into the exploration, exploration, he says, of such teams and leagues uh, no longer with us, defunct, uh, otherwise located, uh, whatever, our little sort of excursion into uh, the annals of time. You know, it's a, an effort on our part to uh, to try to keep a bunch of these shows sort of in uh, not only historical perspective, uh, but also trying to keep them timely uh, with today's events, right? We uh, we can't just live in the past and uh, we uh, try to, you know, divine some lessons uh, for the future and uh, or maybe even the present, God forbid. And uh, this week's episode, I think, is a really good example of how we strive to do that and uh, and how literally some of the stories and adventures that we uh, we traverse in our uh, in our dialing back of the Wayback Machine have, you know, lasting impact and or uh, lessons for uh, things uh, going forward. And, and this week, our guest is Jeff Rusnak. He is the uh, longtime columnist of soccer uh, and other sports for the Sun Sentinel down in uh, in Fort Lauderdale slash South Florida. And uh, we're going to be talking today as the uh, that news clip from uh, just a couple of weeks ago uh, indicates is a, a multifaceted story. Uh, that circles uh, around the sport of soccer, and in particular, an interesting little uh, 
you know, somewhat ramshackle of a stadium, arguably uh, punching above its weight for many years uh, over uh, pro soccer's history, certainly dating back to the 1970s. That's a little stadium called Lockhart Stadium in Fort Lauderdale, Florida area uh, that is now, interestingly, uh, having been sort of the the locus of soccer heat, if you will, during the 1970s, starting in 1977 with the old North American soccer leagues, Fort Lauderdale Strikers, a very interesting story that uh, kind of begins our little journey with Jeff uh, in just a couple of moments that uh, sort of wended its way through not only the history of the North American Soccer League, but its demise, some rumblings of uh, leagues that tried to pick up the slack, the uh, n- another incarnation of the American Soccer League and uh, and a few others, uh, the uh, the reborn North American Soccer League and the Miami fusion, actually, of uh, Major League Soccer. Uh, another key part of this story, all of these teams called Lockhart Stadium, a uh, charitably, I guess you could call it a high school football stadium before the Robbie family, the then owners of the Miami Dolphins and this uh, new fledgling relocated uh, Fort Lauderdale striker franchise, having been uh, in 1976, the Miami Toros playing in the Orange Bowl, you know, found this uh, largely high school football stadium in, in the uh, the wilds of Fort Lauderdale and and literally transformed it. 16,000 and, and some seats, depending on the year and the date you're asking, into a little soccer cauldron, a hotbed, if you will. Uh, that was just an amazing place to uh, take in top tier professional soccer in this country. Uh, why is it important now? Well, as if you've been following the uh, probably the news, Major League Soccer is back after its initial folly uh, or foray with uh, the Miami Fusion uh, back in the day. Again, a big part of our stories we'll get to with Jeff in a few few seconds. As the the new Miami uh, excursion, shall we say, into Major League Soccer begins its journey. It's called Club Inter, a CF. I think it's Club Internacional de Football. Uh, and as many people know, or Miami aficionados of the sport know, that is the David Beckham, Jorge Mas owned entity that is uh, doing its darndest uh, to get a stadium built in uh, the city of Miami proper. Uh, but uh, as uh, history shows, and as we'll get to in our conversation with Jeff Rusnak in a few minutes, the storylines seem to be vaguely similar uh, to some of the issues that both the Fort Lauderdale Strikers in the North American Soccer League and especially the Miami Fusion, the, the Miami Fusion playing in Fort Lauderdale. Those names actually matter. Uh, here we are once again in the uh, debate over where to, to locate a team, a soccer team, either in the city of Miami. Uh, and here comes Fort Lauderdale all over again uh, to kind of save the day as uh as Club Inter starts to recognize that they got to start playing next season and they don't have a stadium in Miami yet. Uh, so we get into all of that very interesting story of uh, the past, uh, the present and the whatever future that uh, awaits Club Inter of Major League Soccer, David Beckham and friends, uh, learning maybe from or maybe not the lessons of Lockhart Stadium, uh, the Miami Fusion, MLS's uh, first attempt at uh, soccer in the Miami, South Florida region, and perhaps most uh, most pointedly, uh, the original Fort Lauderdale Strikers of the old and original North American Soccer League dating back to the late 1970s. All of that is the focus of our very interesting and multi-layered conversation uh, with Jeff Rusnak in uh, just a couple of seconds. I just want to promote one of our uh, great sponsors before we get to this conversation, uh, and I guarantee you will find it intriguing and relevant, uh, and uh, I encourage you to uh, enjoy it. 
uh, as I did just a couple of days ago. Our friends at uh, SportsHistoryCollectibles.com are absolutely worth your uh, your time and uh, your visit. When you go to their website, it's SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. And by golly, why don't you please, by all means, use that promo code that we give to you just about every week here. And that's good seats. Yep, good seats. That's the promo code when you go to SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. And, and by using that code at checkout, what are you going to get? You're going to get 15% off all of your purchases. And yes, soccer fans, you will find a bunch of pieces of memorabilia, some great pennants and some buttons, uh, some programs, uh, a couple of media guides even from both, yes, the Fort Lauderdale Strikers of the old North American Soccer League and actually a championship program for when they played for the uh, the Pro Soccer Championship of 1989 uh, when the Western Soccer Alliance and the American Soccer League played uh, to a championship. Fort Lauderdale did not win that championship, but they were in that final game. You'll find a copy, uh, a pristine version or copy of that program from that game, uh, as well as a Miami Fusion media guide or two, all kinds of fun stuff, not just soccer, but football and baseball and uh, all kinds of sports, Olympics in there, uh, uh, you name the sport, uh, it's in there, and uh, you're going to find some really, really cool stuff. Uh, There's new inventory just about every week there. Our friends Dean Mitchell uh, and team down in San Diego are the curators of such. So give them a try, will you? And uh, of course, when you uh, make your purchases at sportshistorycollectibles.com, uh, shame on you if you do not use that promo code Good Seats because you will then not get and enjoy 15% off all of your purchases. And again, that's sportshistorycollectibles.com. Visit there early, visit there often. And we thank Dean tremendously for his continued sponsorship of this show. And of course, we thank you tremendously for listening to our uh, fun chat uh, with our new friend, Jeff Rusnak, and a conversation around soccer in South Florida, both the past, the present, and let's see what the future is. Uh, Here's our chat that we had just a couple of uh, days ago, actually, and I hope you enjoy it. It's interesting that we're uh, recording this episode around uh, the time when the new uh, or supposedly still new uh, Major League Soccer franchise in Miami is still uh, gelling, shall we say. So I, I appreciate your taking time to kind of uh, get us into some of the, I guess, the backstory of what will might be the sort of, uh, you know, future of soccer uh, in South Florida. But before we get there, why don't you kind of tell our audience a bit of who you are and what makes you so qualified as that uh, will become evident to kind of opine on this, uh, this topic, because uh, you've been sort of on the soccer scene uh, in South Florida for uh, a long time, no? Yeah, well, I, I grew up play, like any American kid. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm as old as Lockhart Stadium, which is going to face demolition this week. Uh, so the, the timing of our conversation, I think, is, uh, is actually quite good uh, for, for the themes that you just outlined. But I, I was just a sports kid growing up, and uh, just we, we got the strikers came in in 1977, our only real professional sports team that we've that we've had in Broward County until the Florida Panthers came in uh, a few years ago uh, and just went to a game. First game was uh, Pelé uh, with the Cosmos coming in. It was, you know, as big a social and cultural event as we had probably had in the county that that year. And, uh, you know, I'm going to say I became, you know, swooned or turned on in one night, but it was it was just a fascinating environment to be in and didn't know anything about the game. And um, still, by the time the team left in 1983, the Strikers left in, in 83, that uh, it gained some knowledge, a sense of it, but it was still the, the fourth or fifth sport 
uh, even down here with the Miami Dolphins uh, and then University of Miami football. Uh, and, and then, you know, just baseball and hockey and basketball, the way that occupied such a space in, in American uh, life and sporting life. Um, and I guess I probably got a, well, I got a job at the Sun Sentinel, entry-level job at the Sun Sentinel in 1985. And uh, we, I would just take calls in from, from high school uh, coaches, you know, basketball, swimming, tennis, whatever the results were, soccer. And um, it would get to playoff time and they would ask, okay, we need somebody to go out and cover, cover games. So I got sent out, did my first byline was, uh, was a soccer game. Uh, my alma mater, South Plantation High School, I uh, covered a game right at the field where I had grown up. Uh, playing and um, it was fun you know and and the game was uh, it was different from all of our other games in the constant movement the constant sense of possibility of the play changing of constantly having to be actively involved in the play unlike baseball where you know baseball are these long intervals of conversation while you're waiting for you know somebody to steal second or you know to to, to bring the run home and um, just kind of that that I guess origin that I got from the strikers uh, sort of kicked in a little bit. And I, um, the next year the uh, high school playoffs came and I, we had a a team here, St. Thomas Aquinas, which has gone on since then to win, I don't know, 15 or 17 state championships. And we were watching their girls team. This is our girls team. And I'm watching them play and I'm going, wow, I've never really seen soccer like this before. They were so good. So composed on the ball, so elegant in the way they played and it just became a game for me that that I just slowly began to to really turn on to, and that was my my first writing gig. And at, at newspapers at the time, nobody was really banging down the door to cover the soccer team, and it was usually entry level person, you know, someone who wasn't going to do do the NFL or the NBA or or any of the other big sports. So I was uh, you know a willing accomplice uh, in in that scenario to to volunteer and. Um, did a little bit in 1990, covering a few games. Then 1991, I was a uh, beat reporter for the uh, Fort Lauderdale Strikers for a bit and um, actually left the paper after uh, 91 and then um, didn't have really anything to write about. And I always just kept coming back to the game. Uh, it, there's something in this game. I never made a living from it, Tim. Never made a living from it, I promise you. Uh, I was uh, mentioned previously in an ESPN story by Jeff Carlisle that I'm a retired soccer writer. Nobody, I, I did not retire off of my earnings from soccer, believe me. Um, but it, the game has always been um, part of part of my life, and I've never really been able to shake it. And it and it keeps circling back. Uh, so probably by the, the mid-'90s when MLS came in, and that was really um, after the World Cup in 94, MLS started. And, and that was the real sense that the game had foundation. And I went to the, the Sun Sentinel. I was a freelance writer at the time. I made a proposal to do a soccer column. And um, the, the editor, Fred Turner, who I had worked for previously, um, said, yeah, sure. You know, papers then had 28 pages. Uh, if you held them open, you know, they stretched across like, you know, two seats. They were gigantic papers. And we covered everything. Uh, so I got got a soccer column and that really became sort of the place where I was able to hone um, a, a voice for writing about the game. And uh, by writing about it weekly, just having that engagement where where I had to deepen my knowledge uh, because I was out there every week telling people what I thought I knew. And um, so ever since then, really, I've I've just been involved in some form or fashion um, writing about the game, uh, did some TV work, 
radio show. Um, and it, it just never leaves me. And, and here we are now with inner Miami circling back and, you know, we start up again, um, next year with, uh, with another MLS team that will, uh, play its first two seasons we understand in Fort Lauderdale and um so yeah that's kind of how I I came to it and um I don't know if I'm I'm an expert but I've been doing it a long time so I have some institutional knowledge at the very least well no and that's that's good because we're always looking for excuses for uh, going deep into various teams and scenarios and stuff and and as you said earlier right this is a very timely conversation given uh the uh I don't know let's say let's call it ongoing drama around this new uh, Major League Soccer uh, franchise in Miami, but maybe a good place to start would be sort of around uh, the structure that seems to be sort of the thread uh, of the past, uh, the, the the long past, the, the recent past, uh, and potentially part of some form or fashion, the future of pro soccer in, uh, in South Florida, and that's Lockhart Stadium. Why don't you uh, give our audience, especially those not familiar with that stadium and or uh, South Florida generally about uh, sort of uh, what the little story about, I guess, that the, the history and why it became, interestingly, so, somewhat of such a focal point for soccer uh, down south in Florida. Yeah, Lockhart uh, is a very modest, started out as a very modest um, high school football stadium. Uh, it was built in 1959, basically two sets of grandstands, about 8,000 seats on either side, about 30 rows up, maybe, you know, 90 yards uh, down each sideline. Um, and at the time it was built in 59, it was so far removed from downtown Fort Lauderdale that people would complain how far they had to drive to get to it. You know, now it's sort of geographically located more or less in the center of, of Broward County and it's fairly close to Palm beach County. So it's geographically, it's, it's very well placed. Um, yeah, football stadium for uh, for a number of years, and as a kid growing up, that's that's how you knew Lockhart. You went to high school football games there, and on the the big big games, it was packed, and it was an occasion. And sometimes the games would be played on radio here. And um, in fact, the year of, uh, of my graduation, uh, 1977, just prior to that, I'd been going to watch my team, South Plantation High, play at Lockhart Stadium. The Strikers came in in 1977, uh, moved from Miami. They were the Miami Gatos and then the Miami Toros. And then uh, the Robbie family, uh, which owned the Miami Dolphins, um, bought the team. Uh, Pele had come in in 75, 1975 with the Cosmos. And it, this was the soccer boom happening. And um, NFL owners couldn't own two teams at the time. So Joe Robbie um, uh, had his wife was technically uh, his wife, Elizabeth, was technically the owner. And it was pretty much a family business. So they started the Strikers in 77 in Lockhart. And it remained uh, a high school football stadium. But since the Strikers went in, it's it's really identified as an I, I believe an iconic uh, soccer stadium in, in the United States. And um, at the time, there was a running track around around the uh, the field. Uh, they, I think they put some stands in on both ends. And so they got the attend, uh, the, the seating up to about 10,000 ish or so. Uh, the strikers went out, won their first four games, uh, were tops in the league that season, a 19 and seven record, um, lost to the Cosmos in the playoffs. But the, but the, as, as Ray Hudson, who played for the team, uh, back then and still lives here and his friend of mine, uh, you know, that was the spark of a revolution and it, it transformed, um, that space. Uh, for whatever high school football could do in that space, it couldn't match what a strikers game was. 
the place was so alive, so vibrant, su- such a happening spot. Um, people who had no idea, none of us knew anything, Tim, about soccer. Uh, we knew you kicked the ball with the side of your foot, not your toe. You know, and at that time, uh, I think the NFL kickers all were soccer style kickers. But, you know, it was a, it was a revolution to have uh, someone come in in the 60s, kick the ball with the side of their foot. We all grew up kicking balls with our toe. So we, we had no idea really who the players were. We had no context. We had no media that would tell us, you know, who was Ray Hudson. We had and now Ray's an iconic figure. They should build a statue for him at the new place. Um, so we, we were so, so new to it. And I think that was part of the charm is that we really didn't know. And, and when the, the game was so good, the quality was so good and the atmosphere uh, that we were able to create there just turned on a lot, a lot of people. And, and I would say a lot of people who, who went then um, in subsequent teams that came along, I, I don't necessarily knew that, know that they came back. I think the strikers created something very unique and special that can never be replicated down here. But what it did and what we're still doing here is we're chasing that, that magic, chasing that ghost that was created in those seven years that the, the strikers were here. And we've not been able to duplicate it since. And every time a team comes through, uh, and it's, it's kind of a running joke that, that I say, they, you know, they end up in Fort Lauderdale at Lockhart Stadium. You know, it's the magnet that, that keeps pulling and, and the big reason for that, I think, is just the, the unique intimacy of the stadium. Be- because it was this very modest high school stadium, the seating was pretty close to the to, to this to this field. You were literally, you know, I mean, if you could th- throw a baseball, you know, 50, 50 yards, you, you could, you know, hit someone at midfield with it. I mean, it was, you were right there. And the players could feel that. And they... The, the strikers were famous for doing something that American teams don't do. After a game, they would jog around the field and applaud the fans and thank them and wave to the fans. And the fans were, were no more than 20, 30 feet away from them. They would go up to the fence, shake their hands, um, drink with them after the games at a place called Pierce Street Annex. So that stadium, because it was so modest um, and, and so threadbare, really, um, it it it, cre- it it was able to form a kind of a bond with a team that a big stadium cannot, and we we are we keep going back to it over and over and over again. Every team that comes through here ends up at Lockhart, and we're looking now um, Monday at uh, this the beginning of the the demolition of the stadium and the um, the minor league baseball stadium right next to it, uh, making way for for Inter Miami. And um, as someone who's lived in that stadium uh, virtually, as a reporter, as a fan, uh, as, uh, as, as a kid in high school, um, it's time. It's actually time to let go. But the, th- the, the thing that's been made very, very clear to Inner Miami, and they understand this, is that if you tear down Lockhart, you cannot lose the Lockhart name. The Lockhart name stays. And they, uh, in their um, stadium model uh, video that they put out uh, about their their site plan, uh, it is called Lockhart. And um, and I think that's a very it's a smart thing to do because um, I think they'll they'll keep uh, the support in Broward County. They won't lose support, and uh, and they won't lose that legacy. It's um, it's a it's a, I wouldn't have imagined that this little place could still hold. Um, 
our our heart in a way that it still does, but it does, and it um and now it's on to a kind of the the future of Lockhart is in an entirely different composition, um and I think it will be a good one um for for where we are in Broward County and, and Fort Lauderdale right now. Yeah, so you know, growing up as a Cosmos fan uh, and watching uh, games from Fort Lauderdale on uh, you know embarrassment of riches because we got to see every every away game on uh, the master uh, channel that was WOR Channel Nine in, in in New York, it was a revelation, right? It was just, you know having gone to games you know seventy seven seventy eight you know where you're talking uh, you know obviously a very famous Fort Lauderdale game which is at the time was the largest crowd ever to watch North American Soccer League game it was a playoff game later that season seventy seven. Eight to uh, eight, eight to three score. We watched it on PBS. There you go. <laughs> it, was, it was like a it was like a basketball game. You know, the Cosmos would score, the strikers would get it, the Cosmos would get it back and go score again. <laughs> it was like uh, it was a, a magic night in a lot of different levels. I mean, it's pouring rain and yes. just twenty thousand people couldn't get in. But 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 then to juxtapose that with uh, you know uh, this uh, again from an outsider's television kids purview, right? This somewhat mm-hmm. seemingly ramshackle oddity you know but but amazingly interesting and and clearly the intensity coming across on the screen of this sort of small somewhat crackerjack kind of you know boxy you know clearly not gigantic giant stadium right uh clearly it was uh unique and and quite i would argue an advantage all right the kickoff is taken over along with yours truly howard david now for the play-by-play and jim carvelis all right, thank you, Howard. On the attack, Fort Lauderdale coming to Cosmo zone, broken up of the Cosmos, reacquired by Ray Hudson. Hudson is their midfield player. He's going to direct the show here tonight. Cosmos took him out of the game Sunday in the Giants Stadium, but this is a new ball game. Alberto, now to Canalia, the midfield line. Back to Carlos Alberto being marked. Now look for Fort Lauderdale to mark very closely. They're going to guard very closely. They felt they gave the Cosmos too much room at the Giants Stadium. They've got a more narrow field to work with here. It's going to be easier for them to mark more closely. And here they come on the attack. Garvin. Foul. Garvin. Foul committed by Fort Lauderdale. Ray Hudson committed the infraction. Oh, correction, it was Hudson that was fouled. We'll get, right. the, we'll get it together. All right, here come the strikers on the attack. Here's a hard shot saved by Messing. Hard shot from the left side, and this crowd is really up, and so are the strikers. Cosmos and the strikers, Lockhart Stadium, Bedlam here. Now, we had 77,000, Howard, and they didn't make much more noise than these people are making. The acoustics are right here as well. Uh, everything is relative, Jim. You know, 77,000 in Giant Stadium. Uh, I don't know, they have 14 or 15 here, but it's a sellout. I'm just wondering how that spark had of specialness sort of came about. Was it just the, simply the, the, the relatively small size of it, or was it – what do you think was that sort of extra secret sauce that sort of made that place such a, I guess, magical place in, in, uh, in retrospect? I think it was a lot of things, but probably the newness of everything. Uh, when I went out – to um, my first game, as I was mentioning earlier, there was a Cosmos, and uh, that night, um, Canalia, Pele, Beckenbauer scored the goals. At the time, I, I don't re- recall that. It was the week I graduated high school, by the way. And, um, and, but you went out there, and you couldn't believe what was happening in your town. We were about a third of the size we are now. And the only thing we had at the time, um, sports-wise, really was uh, we were the Miami Dolphins. We drove to that, and Broward County's always supported Miami teams and 
Miami teams owed their survival to really the support of Broward County fans in many ways. Uh, but we had minor league baseball. We had spring training baseball with the Yankees, but we never had anything that had a real sense of occasion to it. And the way the, the what, what happened with the strikers, the first game, I think there was about 6,123 or so, if I remember the number correctly. I uh, listened to it on the radio. And um, they won their first four games. And down here, when you win and, you, and you're bringing something fresh, uh, people will, will be intrigued by it and they'll show up. So not only did they win their first four games, that first team had probably eight or nine or ten English players that had been brought over. And one or two of them were um, fairly well. Gordon Banks was the goalkeeper. He had actually was operating with just one good eye. Um, he had, had an injury that cost him his eyesight in one eye. Uh, but he was a World Cup goalkeeper with England in uh, 1966, um, known for making the greatest save in World Cup history in 1970 against Pelé. But that was about it, really. The, the manager, Ron Newman, was English, and he had gone and poached these um, English players and, and that they brought over. They all kind of, most of them had this kind of long, shaggy hair. They looked like they could have just as easily been playing, you know, guitar in a rock band. And, uh, and they were just very accessible, very charming. And, uh, and again, and this is a tradition in soccer that's different from, from other games. And you, you see it today, even when a player comes off the field, after putting in an effort, the, the crowd applauds and the player applauds back. And the connection, I think, in, in historically, and it's just innate in, in soccer, is the way um, players relate back to fans. And they brought that, and we had not really seen that before. Uh, it was always the athlete was sort of on this pedestal. He was bigger than us. He was doing things we couldn't do. And the strikers came in. Um, they win their first four games. They applaud the fans showing their appreciation after the, after they had played. And then after the game, there was a social um, where they would go to a place called Pierce street annex. And there would be, a, you know, the place was just overrun and you'd be sitting. I didn't go there at the time, but I had a cousin who was there and she'd sit down and, you know, we'd sit there with George best having a beer. And Uh-oh. it just was an intimacy. There's danger right there. No, no, I know. <laughs> the best story is George best season was uh, incredible. Um, but it was that intimacy that, and, and these guys, Ron Newman was, was the manager and you, you know, of Ron, of course, and Ron passed away last year. Couldn't be a better ambassador, uh, especially in, in a town where the game was new. And uh, Ron was, uh, they were fabulous with the press. They were great. They were completely available and open to the press. And, um, and it just became the, the thing to do. And again, I, we didn't know anything, but I was going with friends who, you know, we'd go to watch dolphin games or, or whatever. And we would just go out there and by season two or three, they had a rock band playing in the end zone. Uh, you know, you party in the, in the parking lot, the, uh, the tailgate parties, we had the weather year round where we could, you know, be outdoors even in the early part of the season. And it, it just became this, um, the thing to do in a place where there wasn't that much more to do besides go to the beach. And, um, and it just caught on and it, and it built and it built and it built. And uh, I heard your part of your recent show with, uh, about the uh, player strike in uh, 1979 and referencing that being about a peak period, uh, for the NSL. And and I think 1980 was probably that year. And, you know, that season we averaged 14,000 a game, which in that stadium means, you know, if you just take two, two or 3,000 either side, you know, they were playing to near capacity on many, many nights. 
and um, Cosmos would come in, couldn't get a ticket, and uh, and they won. And the the Robbie family, uh, once they got a taste of what it could be, they went out uh, just the way they did with the Dolphins, and they got the best people. And uh, we had in our team within a few weeks in the I think it was early part of '79 season. Uh, Teofilo Cabias, uh, Peru's greatest player ever. Uh, George Best, Gerd Mueller. Gerd Mueller was the all-time leading goal scorer in the World Cup up until fairly recently. Uh, so within a just a swoop of time, we were internationalized into now from being this kind of uh, quirky kind of local team with English players into an international brand with um, with players who were known all around the world. And and that parade of talent uh, continued to, to come through. Um, it never replicated that first season, that kind of magic of the first season. It became more of us. We expect them to win. We expect them to, to you know, play for the play for the uh, trophy every year. So the pressures became a little different. But there was always that that sense of occasion when you went to Lockhart. So, uh, and we'll get into sort of uh, uh, what sort of transpired after uh, the original Strikers uh, in a second. But any sense uh, of why Lockhart Stadium in the first place, right? Because this was a team that uh, originated in Miami as the Toros, and you mentioned uh, the uh, the Robbie ownership as as part of it. Um, and, and this is a naive question from somebody who's not sort of lived and grown up in the South Florida area. But obviously, it's a very expansive. Uh, uh, area, right? The, arguably going from, you know, West Palm Beach to the north all the way down to the, you know, uh, down south through Miami itself proper and with Fort Lauderdale somewhat smack in the middle. Why Fort Lauderdale versus the, and this will maybe hint to the current situation, the perceived larger and or more, shall we say, ethnically diverse and maybe even more moneyed population uh, further south in Miami itself proper? I, I've in preparing to speak to you, I was trying to think through that same question myself. I was, you know, I was in high school at the time. So what was hap- what would happen in Miami? And this has happened with every single team in Miami. The idea that Miami is this sort of this melting pot, this ethnic melting pot that's perfect for soccer, I think is more true today than it, it has been. Back in the in the seventies, there was this idea that you know they they called them the gatos, okay? Gatos is Spanish for cat, and then the toros, you know, these are these are names that were built to appeal to to, to Latinos. The fact of it is, is that in in the seventies, uh, Miami was largely um, emerging as a, uh, a satellite to Havana, really, and it was a Cuban population, and Cubans are not soccer players, soccer people. Cubans are baseball people. And so there was this idea that, well, they're Latin, they, they must love soccer. And then actually that was not the case at all. And I think Miami struggled also. I think um, Miami did, didn't have, and maybe, and I don't know, they still do have. In, in Broward, there is this sense of more of a communal feeling. Families, you know, growing up, um, big park spaces. Miami, I think, is this a little more of a hodgepodge of of kind of of areas where you're just not going to get much support and the orange bowl was great for for football but you put four thousand people in the orange bowl and believe me there is no sense of occasion sitting among four thousand people in a 78 or eighty thousand seat stadium the robbies um i'm not exactly i don't recall exactly the whys and wherefores of why they came but i'm i'm going to guess that it was that they knew that 
Um, well, be, being the owners of the Dolphins, my, my guess is they would have known where their audience was coming from uh, for the Miami Dolphins. I grew up in Plantation, my, uh, which is about 30 minutes from downtown Miami. My dad took me to the first Dolphins game. And uh, Joe Auer takes the opening kickoff, 95 yards, touchdown. A dolphin jumps up in the end zone out of a, of a pool of water. And, uh, and he says, wow, this is great. <laughs> Let's keep doing this. And so we, we were Dolphin fans. And we would there was going down to the Orange Bowl from Broward County uh, was a traffic backup. So they had to know, looking at, at their audience, that there, was, there were sports fans here. And sports fans with the means to support um, another team. And... And I think they, they looked at the stadium and they said, it's big enough to start. And and when we need more, it's easily adaptable uh, to adding on. And that's, I guess for, for me, Tim, is just, there was that time when, and you being in New York with the Cosmos, it just sort of, um, the, the Cosmos sparked this, this irrational exuberance in the game. And that probably was a little bit what happened, uh, with a lot of owners and, you know, you doing the work that you do with, with your podcast, you know, the, the list of teams that failed, uh, the strikers managed to hang in there, um, had to leave, to go to Minnesota in their last season because the league wanted to have an indoor team as well. And they, it was not successful here that way, but I just think they, they just looked at it like we want in on this and we're not going to play in Miami because we don't have the stadium's not right. And, uh, we're going to give it a go. And I don't know that they thought it would catch the way quite the way it did. Um, but they were great owners, the best, still the best team owners we've had here. Um, in my view, up until the, the Arison family taking over the Miami heat, uh, they, they've been, they were fantastic in the way they created a sense of, um, connections with their, with both the dolphins, um, and then the strikers as well. Well, so that must have made it especially difficult, uh, uh, given that uh, the team leaves to go to Minnesota in, what, 83 or so. And so juxtapose that with uh, your, uh, shall we say, uh, initial foray in, into journalism, because it's it's almost um, unfortunate, right, that uh, this league and this team are essentially kind of evaporating, uh, just as you're sort of getting your, uh, your feet wet and, and, and arguably recognizing that you've got some interest and or facility with this uh, the sport of soccer maybe a little bit of sort of the what becomes of Lockhart and uh, the pro soccer scene uh, with their departure because it was clearly a fallow period of time before the I guess the sort of second ish division of the I don't know reconstituted American Soccer League and it's clearly a much more minor league kind of existence in the years that followed. Right. Yeah. For me as a journalist, that, that would have really been another decade out. I think I just needed more, um, you know, the, the time and the seasoning as a writer uh, to, to kind of be the fusion was really my time. And in terms of that, when the strikers left, I was at the last game. I had actually just moved back from uh, I had a friend up in um, in uh, Cape Cod and we I was up there for the summer. My dad got sick. I came home in August and, um, the striker, I just happened to time it for the strikers last game and a uh, bizarre night. We were up two zero playing, playing our skins, playing out of their skins. They were brilliant and then gave up four goals in the last 10 minutes. And it was, a uh, it was sort of one of those nights where we knew they were leaving. And it was one of those nights where it was, um, they showed us what we were going to miss, uh, when they were gone for those 80 minutes. And then they said, don't get too attached and let's end this relationship now. And they gave up four goals. The last one was the worst own goal I think I've ever seen. 
uh, Thomas Rangan, just a little soft pass to the goalkeeper, Jan Van Beveren. And uh, Van Beveren's not even looking at it. The ball just rolls so slowly and uh, over the goal line. I don't even think it touched the net. And that was it. And it was over. And, uh, but, <laughs> and this is, this is the beginning. All endings are really the beginning of something else. So this became the beginning of trying to recapture the strikers. And that started the very next season. There was a, a United soccer league was formed with nine teams around the United States. And of course we had a team uh, called the Fort Lauderdale sun uh, that was placed in, in that league. And uh, the sun was the, the champions for that year. I went to one game um, with my dad. I was uh, other things were happening in my life at the time, but I went to a game, knew what was going on a little bit by the second season, the owner had been busted uh, for trying to smuggle $200,000 worth of pot in through Laredo. And, uh, and that was the end of that team. And, um, and then talk about a fallow period that there literally the game died, um, pretty much in this country. Um, odd thing in, in 84, as the, the sun was here, I'm watching, uh, the Olympics were in LA that year and I'm turning on the TV and they, they showed a picture of Stanford stadium for a soccer match and it was packed 90, 80,000 people in Stanford stadium. And I said, wow, look at that. And that attendance, the, the, the attendances they got in California for, um, for the Olympics were the seed that put that led to the bid for the United States in 1988 to go for the world cup, um, to be the host for the 94 world cup. And that saved really, uh, the game in this country, because if not for, um, a, all those people going to Stanford be inspiring this idea. Gosh, man, if we did a world cup here, we could, we'd fill stadiums for a month. They'll come, they'll, they'll be in, they'll, they'll fill these stadiums that bought, um, bought, brought the game back is once the, once the, um, world cup was awarded to the United States in 88, uh, another league started the American soccer league, which of course, Fort Lauderdale came in as a Fort Lauderdale strikers in that league. And the, the problem, Tim, with all the minor leagues, as I'm sure you know through your research, is they all start with a good first night. If a team is decent, they'll hang in there for a little while. Um, but there's no sustainable economic model for it. You can't make enough money selling tickets, no television money, no merchandise sales. And um, so our next version of the Strikers, which was from 1988 to, to 94, started well. I actually worked one season in 92, got kind of an inside view of how, how a minor league team works. And, um, and then they, they were, they were gone by, by 94, had gone through three or four different owners and everybody, again, just believing they could that recapture the striker magic that uh, we had been so privileged to experience uh, previously. So th that was an interval really. And I think the MLS coming in as a result of the world cup in 94. And that was part of the deal. The other part of the world cup getting the, the United States getting the bid is that the United States would have to start a professional soccer league, a first division professional soccer league comparable to what we had with the NASL. And then that really, I think has brought us into about a 12 year period there where I think the game was at a pretty anonymous state and then, and now brought it back to, MLS in 96 and then building it to where, you know, here we are, what, 20 something years later with another team coming into South Florida and then, and then a new, a new, a new Lockhart, um, 
giving birth here in the next over the next year. They've got to basically demolish this whole site um, in 90 days and then build a stadium, build a training facility, build offices uh, and be ready to go by January. So uh, that, that's kind of, you know, in, in the linear of, of the story, that's 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 where we are now. And um, yeah, so I'm not sure that answers the question because I, I came in as a journalist really in 90, 91. And uh, just, you know, everybody else had kind of peeled off or taken another assignment. And I raised my hand and said, I'll, I'll do that. I'll, I'll go. They knew they knew I liked the game. And that that's really when I kind of got started at it. All right, we're going to take a quick, brief pause. And uh, we want to remind you that our friends at Audible uh, are offering to you, our listeners, an opportunity to get a free audiobook download uh, from their amazing array of over 190,000 titles to choose from. Uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats, and that's the place to go to get your free audiobook download, courtesy of us and Audible. Uh, and uh, it's something you can cancel at any time, and you can uh, keep the book for as long as your device uh, exists. And like I said before, there's just a ton of choices uh, available to you to burn up that free credit, uh, including a bunch in the realm of our forgotten sports little genre here, uh, including uh, in the realm of basketball. If you fancy yourself a fan of the old ABA, for example, uh, two great books on the great Julia Serving that might be uh, worth uh, uh, using your credit for. One, of course, is the, uh, uh, the Rise and Rise of Julia Serving. It's called Doc. And it's written by Vincent Malazzi and uh, narrated by David Cremet. You could use your credit for that book. Uh, and it's a great sort of uh, interview uh, style uh, uh, background on the uh, life and times of Dr. J uh, from, uh, from all sides. Uh, but if that's not good enough for you, why not try the autobiography? It's called Dr. J, the autobiography, of course. It's written by Dr. J in, in concert with uh, Carl Greenfeld. And it's narrated by Dr. J himself, Julius Irving. Uh, and uh, you could use your credit for that book, as well as, like I said, thousands and thousands of other books, not just only in basketball and basketball history, but in a whole host of genres and topics. By all means, give them a try. Why don't you? It's risk-free, for God's sakes. AudibleTrial.com slash good seats. Yes, AudibleTrial.com slash good seats. That's the link. Uh, and that's where you're going to get your free audiobook download. Again, you can cancel at any time. And once you do download that book for free, and uh, after you cancel it, if you if you choose to do that, it's yours to keep. So you can enjoy uh, in perpetuity for as long as your device lives. Uh, they download a book free and gratis, courtesy of uh, yours truly here at Good Seats Still Available and our friends at Audible. Thank you, Audible. We appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate you uh, joining our conversation once again. Well, let, let, let's talk about the fusion then, because uh, uh, so you're, you're mentioning the uh, the tie between uh, the World Cup and the expectation of a major uh, league uh, again, uh, much to the delight of many fans of the old North American Soccer League and pro soccer and having it seen uh, it, it, it die and wither and, you know, pretty much uh, uh, lay fallow for quite some time. Maybe a little bit of an origin story about how the fusion sort of came about, because uh, they were not part of the original group of teams that started in 96, they came along two years later with, uh, at the time when I was a huge fan of the other expansion team, the Chicago Fire. And, and quick little anecdote for all our uh, soccer nerds out there. I was actually at uh, the uh, 
the first ever uh, Miami Fusion game, which was against my uh, Chicago Fire. I think that was the first game of Miami Fusion. The second, you were at the, Sorry, se- second. That was the second game. That first, first ever you were for at that fire. game. For, for, first ever for the Fire, okay. yes. That was a revelation because that's where Z- uh, goalkeeper Zach Thornton actually uh, stepped up that, uh, to be uh, saved a, a penalty kick, the whole bit that, uh, you know, supposedly this one. Well, or or, 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 or Campos was going to be sort of this uh, superstar goalie for the Fire, supposedly. But it's clear that, you know, having been, that was my first trip ever to, to Lockhart Stadium. But I guess I'm really interested in sort of that origin story uh, about how it was determined that the quote unquote Miami fusion, in quotes for a reason, you know, I'm sure you're going to get to that, was deemed uh, worthy to be the first of the expansion franchises in this fledgling league's history. Well, the the original group of ten, Miami was always always going to be in consideration and did not make the cut for the the first ten, and and um, lack of ownership would be really the reason for that. Uh, and I think the way the league was set up with that owner investor thing, um, anyway, they didn't didn't really come together um, for that first group. So the '96 uh, that was '96, '98 was the year that Chicago and then Miami Fusion came in and. Um, the owner of the Miami Fusion at the time, Ken Horowitz, had uh, an ownership stake in the Metro Stars, New York, New Jersey Metro Stars. So he had gotten a taste of the league, and he he um, he had made his money in uh, telecommunications, um, and he bought a team uh, for twenty million dollars. And two years earlier, the 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 entrance fee to get in the league was five million dollars. My first question to Ken was. Um, did you overpay? <laughs> you know, there's a $5 million franchise two years ago. It's 20 million. Now he says, no, that the, the value of the league has gone up. Those are famous last words um, for the fusion. So the, the fusion, I, I, the way the Miami thing happened, they, they weren't going to go um, to Lockhart. I think they always had their, their mindset on Miami and, and Miami is the, the glamor of it. Miami does resonate. You say Miami anywhere, Latin America, um, they're going to get it. They know what Miami is. And I think there was always the idea that Miami would be this connection to to Brazil and Argentina and Ecuador and Colombia, we have a huge Colombian population here, Venezuela, and and that 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 would give MLS a gateway into the Americas. So one of the things that was in play at the time was the state of Florida was giving sixty million dollars in um, uh, renovation money to older stadiums as long as they had a professional tenant. The Dolphins had moved on. So the Orange Bowl was, was, only had the University of Miami, which would not make them eligible for this money. So and besides the fact that they were going to go to Miami because, of the, because it was Miami and because of the connection to Latin America, there was stadium money that they thought they could get, and that would have been $2 million a year for 30 years. So the city of Miami was real keen on getting that money to do the stadium improvements. And then for the, for the fusion, for the owner, Ken Horowitz, that would be a way to, to help pay for the, you know, the, the, the upgrades in the stadium and making it a good fan experience and all that. I don't think, I think at the time though, when that, when they hoped to get that money that, that the state was looking at, they didn't need to do this anymore. And I think that fell off. And the other thing was happening is, and this is what's happening. The same thing with inner Miami. It is much easier to do business in Broward County than it is in Miami Dade. And I Ken became frustrated with the progress that was being made in coming to a lease agreement. And it was not that great of a lease agreement. I don't have the details in front of me. I read it the other day and I, I looked at it and I said, not, not really conducive to long-term success. 
there's a guy I, I know known for a long time. I worked with him briefly in uh, 92 when I worked in the striker's office, a guy named Eddie Roger. And Eddie is, uh, was a trainer for the original strikers. And um, Eddie went into sports management in the 90s. And Eddie contacted Ken uh, and said, you should take a look at Lockhart. And Eddie became the conduit for bringing uh, Ken Horowitz into the history of Lockhart, into what happened with when the, when the strikers were here. And, you know, and any owner, uh, and I, I think Jorge Moss is doing this a little bit with Inter Miami with, with Lockhart, is having a, a, you know, a plan B, a leverage. So Ken started talking to uh, City of Fort Lauderdale about renovating Lockhart Stadium. Um, Miami, again, hard to make, to do business, the lease not that good. And over a span of about two months, uh, Ken just turned on a dime and decided um, and got the approval of the city of Fort Lauderdale and Broward County uh, to go in. And this was in September, uh, Tim. He gets an agreement in September. The team's first game is in March, the following March. So within a span of just a couple of months of, of reevaluating the, 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 the logic of being in Miami, coming to Miami, putting, putting money into the stadium, having a much better lease deal and recreating that striker kind of magic of that intimacy of the stadium. Um, Ken, you know, came in, they put the bleachers up, uh, some seating around the end zone, new press box, $5 million on top of the 20 million he paid. And um, as the day of the first game against DC United, which would have been the week before you were there, and they were literally, you know, still with paintbrushes, dabbing certain areas of the of, of the stadium. Uh, they were working right up to the day of the first game to get the stadium ready, and uh, and that that's, you know, that's how that that started, and um, and the first game there were twenty thousand four hundred and fifty people total sellout. The, the unlike the Strikers though, the, the the Fusion lost its first game. Major League Soccer's opening day here at Lockhart Stadium in Fort Lauderdale. Miami Fusion history has begun. Quite enough velocity on our power to get it past the goalkeeper Garlic. Nice pass, Sane back to Williams. Tucks the shot in goal. Go for DC. They split the defense on the far side. Sane lays it back, and Williams slams it home. Five-man wall. Echeverry, far post. Oh, off the bar, and the rebound shot put in by Sane. When the shot came in, Sane lost his marker, Kleiman, and the ball found his foot, and he found the back of the net. It's 2-0 D.C. Miami Fusion history has begun, but it begins with a 2-0 loss against D.C. Uh, missed an opportunity there to kind of turn the fans on. And then the next week when you were there with, uh, with Chicago, um, didn't score a goal again. And it was almost like all the, all the luck and, the, and everything that went great with the Fusion was kind of we were being paid back for. I mean, with the Strikers, I'm sorry, we were being paid back with the Fusion. The Fusion started the exact opposite of what the Strikers. They started with big crowds. And then, and then, and instead of wins, they started with losses, and and the crowds just started to go away, and and that that, that happened pretty quickly in that first season. It was a uh, it was a real kind of It was a major disappointment. We had um, a, a bad start, and they they could never really recover from it. Unwittingly, though, it became kind of the uh, the uh, beginnings of this idea of a soccer specific stadium. Uh, I, I think, frankly almost unintended, right? Uh, a lot of people sort of look at Columbus and, and their stadium as being sort of the first 
uh, ever really. But if you if you really think about it, this you know this really was sort of the beginnings of the idea in practice of how a a more intimate arrangement might look for for soccer in the United States, especially with it being the primary tenant versus a a lessor or lessee. You 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 picked up on the point that I was hoping to get to um, in my previous answer, and that is exactly what happened. Um, MLS came in and, you know, we all rationalize based on, you know, what's available to us, you know, and MLS came in and Doug, Doug Logan was the commissioner. And excuse me, Doug did a great job getting the league started. The idea though, that we're going to sort of revitalize these old stadiums, the cotton bowl, the orange bowl, uh, soldier field, and, you know, and, and kind of give them a new life with, with the team. Well, they really didn't have a choice to be honest that those were the only stadiums available. Uh, Doug uh, Logan was um, resistant to Lockhart right up until the first uh, game was played. And, and they did not want to leave Miami. The league wanted the name Miami uh, to, to stand. Um, they weren't comfortable coming to a smaller stadium. And after that first game, Sunil Galati was there, who was a uh, deputy commissioner in the league at the time, went on to be the president of U.S. soccer. Uh, Doug Logan was there, um, DC United, the first opponent, uh, Bruce arena, they were the standard bearers of American professional soccer. And they all that same day said, this is where we need to go. These kinds of stadiums. So you're dead on observation. That was the beginning. And that's why Lockhart is a legacy stadium because it showed MLS that again, going back to what, you know, 3000 people watching the Toros in, in the orange bowl, Versus, you know, 10,000 people in a 20,000 seat stadium isn't so bad. So they could mask the smaller crowds uh, on those nights. They had smaller crowds. And on the nights when MLS would have bigger crowds in a small stadium, now it really felt like, again, going back to that feeling that it's a sense of occasion. Being, being in a, a, what feels like a big crowd in a small venue is a completely different experience than being in the same number of people in a stadium where they're covering the seats and the, and the, the sound doesn't hold in any of that. But yeah, Lockhart was the beginning of the future of where MLS has gone and where it is uh, today, completely unequivocally. And though the fusion go- went out of business, that's what they gave this league. And that's what Ken Horowitz gave this league. So what of the name uh, Miami versus the location Fort Lauderdale and how much did that contribute to the relative unsuccessful run of the fusion. Uh, it seems to me from sort of being a league fan and, and removed from the situation that Fort Lauderdaleans, if that's a word or whatever, for people who live in Fort Lauderdale or the environment don't necessarily love the idea of housing and or being branded as Miami. Yeah, we were kind of used to Miami being the, you know, the prettiest couple in the, in the room, you know, we get that the dolphins we're used to driving down for that. The, the Miami heat, you you just go where the game is. You know, I, I think we're less caught up in it than I think Miami people are look at Broward County as, you know, up there and just don't, don't really are less likely, I think, to make the, make the trip up than we are to make the trip down to Miami. We're used to it. Um, so I, I think there is this a little bit of a balkanization in terms of, um, dividing the counties a little bit. And I think it's probably 
grown a little bit in the sense that I think Broward now has so much more to do. Gate has, has grown up as well. Um, what's become more of an issue, traffic was never great down here, but it's, it's getting to be where to go, you know, one county to the next is a, is a little bit of a bigger lift because of, um, because of just the time it takes to get somewhere. Um, I think at the fusion, the last season of the fusion, Ray Hudson was the coach and they played what is still regarded as uh, one of the, the, the most, uh, the best quality of an MLS team in its history among the three or four teams that played the best soccer. I believe had they, they stayed after a while, let's say if they go four years more and, and it's, and it's established as a Fort Lauderdale team, I think there would have been a, uh, a, a question of, you know, why are we calling it Miami? It's not Miami anymore. It started that way. We understand that. But I think there would have been a move to rebrand the team, possibly in the in the in the in the um, renaming it as the Fort Lauderdale Strikers, if it had caught on and and stayed. Um, and I think it would have been smart for the re- some of the reasons you outlined. I think it just gives that sense of the community you're in, having that buy-in with the team, having that connection with the team. And if um, you know people will people will come to watch something if it's really good, and. I think they would have been able to get, get past that with, I don't think Miami people would have been offended actually to have a team that's playing in Fort Lauderdale rebranded. You know, we never got there um, because the, the team was disbanded um, by, by MLS. Um, I think we're going to run into it a little bit with um, inner Miami. Um, I think at the beginning uh, people will come from Miami and, and come down. I don't think this is a great, I think it's a it's a very good solution they've come up with. It's not an ideal scenario though for the um, for the launch of a team. Uh, Beckham said it. David Beckham said it. You only get one first game, and Miami Inter Miami is going to play its first game in Fort Lauderdale, and it starts to bring back this feeling that it never makes it in Miami, and they always end up in Fort Lauderdale anyway. And here we are before they've even played a game in Miami, they're back in Fort Lauderdale. So I think over the course of this team's early history, um, they're going to have to work through those identity issues a little bit. And my understanding is the way they will do that is go out and get as good a player as they can afford and they can afford a lot. (laughs) So the plan is wherever we play, we're going to put a team out there that people are going to want to we're going to create an experience and we're going to put a team out there that people do not want to miss. And they, they have anything short of that uh, will be a problem. Yeah. It's very interesting. You're mentioning the identity things. I think it's a very, uh, and I think this is one of those themes that's going to continue to play out. Right. Cause it's also interesting that, you know, circa 99, right. This is when the San Jose clash at the time then went back to the right. well, maybe against MLS's wishes which is a whole other sort of thread to this, right? How much of the old mm-hmm. NASL, especially at that time with a new league fledgling, did, did people want to, quote unquote, remember, right? Because I think arguably it was still fresh enough in people's minds as it was a, uh, I want to say disaster, but it was, it failed ultimately, quote unquote. And why revisit that? Yet the earthquake's name comes back in 99. And as we've seen with with further teams coming back into Major League Soccer, Right. There's this sort of uh, uh, adopting the old names uh, and it's very hard to whitewash 
the the past that comes with those old names, especially if they resonated with longer standing citizens who were there during the original years of that franchise name. Right. So you look at uh, NASL goes uh, fails, supposedly fails. Um, we None of this would have be happening, of course, if not for all those failures. So um, the, the, the history of American soccer began with the failure of the NASL. So this supposedly failed league in, goes out of business in 1984. So 12 years later, MLS starts. So let's see, I was in 1984, how old was I? I was, um, I don't know, not quite 25, 26. And then I'm 37, 38 when the next league comes along. I'm still kind of in the bread and butter years. You know, it's not that big of a deal uh, in terms of the, the time and, and the way people connect to the game. And that was a miscalculation that they, the MLS made in that they wanted to distance themselves from the so-called failure. And they did it, you know, they did a smart thing is by getting a control of, of cost. The single entity, I think, was the way that made it comfortable for owners, the shared profits and losses. Everybody's in the same. And all that worked. But what they, what they failed to understand was that the, that the NASL did connect with people. And it was, a, um, a, a, you know, Seattle had the Sounders, right? They, Seattle comes back in as the Sounders, the Portland Timbers. You know, th- those those teams um, connected. And I'm glad to see that in San Jose. When I saw that, I didn't I, I thought the clash was an OK name. I didn't have a problem with it. But, yeah, we're the earthquakes. We're the San Jose earthquakes. You know, we're the Seattle Sounders. This is who we are. This is our history. And I, and I think trying to to whitewash or run away from your history typically doesn't you know work as a great line in the movie Hard Eight. You can you can forget the past but the past does not forget you. And that past was so powerful that NASL history was so powerful um, that it did carry over into MLS, regardless of whether they wanted it to or not. And, um, and I think that's a testament really, not just to the NASL, but to the power of the game to keep people. Um, even when we went through that, that decade or so period where there really wasn't much to watch or follow and, um, you know, the, the game sustains this ultimately is, is, is the game worth going to, is it worth watching? Is it a great game? And it is. And, and that's why, uh, MLS was, you know, started well, weathered a little bit of a patchy time there when the fusion and the Tampa were contracted. Um, but it got through it. And then the David Beckham moment, really the way Pele sparked the game in, in 75 coming to the cosmos, Beckham in 2007 coming into the galaxy. Um, but through all this, you know, people's connection to this game and their, their feeling for, you know, what it's like to be in a stadium. And when your team, you know, gets that goal at the end and you walk out of there feeling like you're flying, um, that's what keeps us, you know, holding on to our names, holding on to our teams, holding on to these stadiums that, that we go to. It's that experience, that fan experience, you know, or as a journalist, when you, when you get to write about these, these moments. And um, so, you, you know, for all the, the, the that we talk about um, through all this history now, and it's a short history, there's a really short history that we're talking about. The game has managed to, to get its hooks in and then keep, keep digging a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And, you know, now we're at, at a moment where the game's, you know, it's here. It's, it's part of our, part of the life of American life. And, um, 
So it's a testament to, I had this idea for a, a business, right? So my business would be is going to potential team owners and saying, this is how much money you're going to lose on this soccer franchise. I'm going to save you the money. Just give me 10% of your projected losses. I'm going to save you the 2 million you were going to lose. So nobody would listen to that idea because everyone who's made money thinks they're going to be different and they're going to make money. But the game that we have today is owed to all these people who through, through these years went out and put their money down with the belief that they were going to be different and that they were going to make money at this game. And the game is, is like anything it's built on these layers of failure until you get to the point where, you know, you've made it. And I think, you know, the NASL gave us that chance uh, to make it. And, you know, and here we are. And, you know, today, I mean, there's eight or 10 games on TV that I'm going to be able to watch MLS, Spanish league, Italian league, whatever I want to watch, I can watch today. And that all started really with uh, those owners putting the money in, uh, bringing those players in, creating that identity um, with fans. And um, I'm glad the earthquakes are back. All right, so let's uh, let's let's finally then set the table then for what's ahead. Uh, and we've sort of danced around it, but um, uh, maybe we can get a little bit more clear-eyed about sort of what's in the mix right now. MLS is, you know, for a, a while now has been uh, chomping at the bit to get uh, back into the quote unquote Miami market. David Beckham has gotten sort of the uh, deal of the century, supposedly, uh, as part of his original contract to have a. Uh, very heavily reduced price uh, franchise in the league, and that's not for forever, right? So there's a period of time he's got to exercise that. And Miami has been that place, but it has not gone very smoothly. Uh, There still really isn't a a clear sense of how that stadium situation in and around the city or the environs of Miami is actually going to finally play out. Uh, But here again comes Lockhart Stadium, as we've sort of hinted at before. Uh, almost uh, as a either a lever, as you were mentioning earlier, or dare I say, could history repeat itself again, where this new Lockhart, so to speak, becomes maybe the end game and the actual residential uh, place of where Inter Miami winds up playing over time? Uh, yeah, the short answer would be yes, it could. Uh, I, as someone who is lives 15 minutes from Lockhart and would just love the fact that it's going to be here. Um, I'm perfectly comfortable with Miami making it. And I hope they do. Um, that was the, that was the idea. And um, I, we're, we're going to see what's going to happen. We don't, we don't know. And I think a lot of the issues with the team um, is they, the, the only thing you're really reading about are, are you know, the, the legal issues of dealing with trying to get the stadium in Miami this week. We just dealt with them. Um, even the agreement in, in Fort Lauderdale, there was a, a competing group trying to get it. And a judge ruled on Friday that inner Miami has the right to go in and with the city of Fort Lauderdale property and demolish the existing facilities and build on that, on that space. So even this week, it was the, we're preoccupied with, with the, the legal side of it versus, you know, that, ex, that, that excitement you, you get from who's in it, who's the first player going to be, who's the manager going to be. We don't talk about that. We have not talked about that. And that's not the best way to, to, to build the brand. I think Miami um, probably will happen. Um, and the reason is, is that the, the current, the space that they would go build on is right now is the Mel Reese. It's a public golf course, Mel Reese it's called. 
And there was a, a vote in November uh, whether to give uh, the Beckham Group the uh, an a opportunity for a no bid um, uh, contract on that space. Miami voters voted 60 to 40 percent with Beckham against uh, keeping the golf course. That's a pretty big margin politically. Um, as of last I've heard, there are still two commissioners out of five that have to vote on this that um, are against um, that, that have not been won over. I'll put it that way have not been won over um, to, with that space. And here's where the Beckham getting the, the bargain that you referred to. It, it's, it's critical, I believe, to this even happening at all. Beckham, as my understanding, got a $25 million franchise fee. David Beckham's probably not spent five cents of that. He's probably retaining majority. And this is me speculating, but I, I feel pretty safe in this. He's probably got majority ownership. He's got a stack of billionaires, five deep, uh, that have probably come in for whatever the you know whatever their their stake in it is. Um, but they're spending peanuts to get ownership of the franchise. The money that they would normally put into buying the franchise is up to two hundred million now uh, for MLS. That money that they're not spending on a franchise fee is money that gives them the latitude and the flexibility to do what they're doing at Lockhart. They're uh, going to put between 60 and 75 million into that space. And it gives them money to build their own stadium um, at what will be called Freedom Park. So money solves a lot of problems and it makes lawsuits go away uh, sometimes. And I believe they'll get it done because the owner, uh, Jorge Moss, is a Miami guy. Um, he's, he's a big part of the community down there. And I think he will be driven to make that deal happen. Um, but he's also the type that would just say, you know, no, I'm not taking that deal. We're not doing that. If, if the deal isn't right. And if they were to end up in Fort Lauderdale, I think it may go to three seasons, to be honest, we're looking at two, uh, it, it could go as long as three and I think there is a danger of of it ending up and 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 being here. And we'll see once they start playing next year what the res- what the response is going to be. Whether, like you had alluded to before, does Broward County feel like you know is this a guest in our town or are they are they part of us? And you know to the extent I, I think those things do matter. Um, how how you how you connect to uh, how a team connects to a community and how a community identifies with that. And I think they've got some ground to make up in that area. Um, and the best way they can do it is to get the best possible players and the best possible manager to put the best possible team out there. Cause if it's a great team, none of this will matter. People will go watch. So regardless of, of how it ultimately plays out, do you, I think I know the answer to this, but do you sense that inter Miami the, makes some reference and or uh, bows deferentially to uh, this history of Lockhart and what came before it? Or do you think it'll be largely ignored because it's a new brand and, and nobody wants to remember arguably the past? No, they, they've already, they're calling it Lockhart. Um, it's, it's uh, no, they could name the, the facility, the space is, is called Lockhart, everything. And they know that. Uh, we were about a couple months ago, uh, Paul McDonough, who's the general manager uh, for Inter-Miami, invited 
it was myself and about a dozen other um, Broward-based uh, soccer people. Ray Hudson was there, Eddie Rogers, who I mentioned earlier, Tim Robbie, who was involved with several uh, incarnations of running the teams here, um, Tufilo Cabillas, who had played. So it was really the people that he wanted to to introduce himself to in Broward County. And, and you know, I, I believe it was might have been me, raised my hand and, and said, you know, will there be something done there that will acknowledge the, the history of Lockhart? And he said, absolutely. And they've, they've lived up to that in their, in their stadium, uh, in the model that they uh, developed as a, a, a virtual video of the, of the site. And it is very prominent, uh, Lockhart. And, you know, one of the things, uh, Tim, that, you know, in all the years that you're going to Lockhart, it's like when you go, when you pull into the, the stadium off a of commercial boulevard, and this is big, big stretch of kind of soft sand, and there's like a water uh, processing uh, little uh, station there and there's like parking and, and it's not even like paved. It's just gravel and there's some trees. And it's not really all that, you know, attractive to be honest. And you're surrounded over on the other side with the machine shops and warehouses and, and this, and you get to Lockhart and there's no sort of prominent thing there that says, wow, you're at Lockhart stadium. <laughs> you know, it's not like you've arrived to the cathedral. There's really no branding at all. Uh, on that stadium. So inner Miami actually uh, in, in their version of what Lockhart would be uh, I think it's a a, a beautiful vision for the site. Uh, 18,000 seat stadium training fields um, um, that would bring in, uh, we're a big site just the way for baseball spring training. We've historically been where we, we will be a big site for uh, international teams coming in to train MLS teams coming in the train because of the weather. Um, this, this space has a capacity to be a, a really um, iconic in a new way uh, as a, not just a training facility, but a, a site for, for games. Um, and I think they'll do the, the Lockhart name justice. Um, they'll, they'll expand on it um, in, in what they're doing. When I saw the, the site plan and what they were looking to do, um, it just kind of sent a little bit of a, like that, a good chill through me. It was like, this is a fulfillment of what we thought the strikers would be, you know, 40 years ago. We thought we would be, you know, oh, if this keeps going, imagine what it's going to be in 20 or 30 or 40 years. Well, that never happened. And Inner Miami has come in and they're saving an abandoned site. It's abandoned. Nobody plays there. Nobody, there's no, there's no reason to go there. They're saving this site. And I think they're going to elaborate on it in ways that are going to um, make it even more iconic than it was um, when the strikers played here. Well, in a perfect world, right, it would be it, it would also help regionalize the appeal of the uh, of Inter Miami as a as a franchise and, and the regionality. Right. And I guess also in uh, continuing that perfect world, you, you put a, a USL franchise and once the team goes to Miami and God forbid you call it the Fort Lauderdale strikers and, and sort of the, uh, the circle is complete, right? I've heard, saw some mention of that on Twitter that they were looking to maybe buy the, um, the striker name. I think, um, I think a guy named Bill Edwards in Tampa, the Tampa Bay Rowdies purchased it a couple years ago. Uh, I'm not sure what the, the value of it is, but they, they could do that. I think they're looking to do a USL two team. So it's more like a, like a double a baseball equivalent, you know, uh, not in the main USL. They're not going to compete with themselves. But one of the things, you know, where the location is, and this hasn't really, we talked earlier about the sort of Miami-Dade versus Broward-Fort Lauderdale, that dividing line. Lockhart is 
closer to Palm Beach County, which has no sports franchises, um, and a, and a pretty pretty vibrant, uh, at least in the south part of the county, pretty vibrant soccer community there, youth soccer community. I think that will, by being at Lockhart, they'll it, it behooves them really to um, get get a presence in um, in the South Palm Beach County and even in the Central Palm Beach County, and uh, and really look to um, extend the the geography of the team. They're going to struggle getting Miami people from South Miami to come, uh, Central Miami, South Miami to come in. North Miami, it's not that big of a drive; they can do it. Um, but they are at a little bit of a distance from what they are eventually going to call home. Um, so they've got to re they've got to re earn those uh, a different set of fans. And I think there is the opportunity in Broward, but also in South Palm Beach to to expand expand the extend the brand as well. All right. Well, uh, I, I I reserve the right to uh, keep you on the sh- the short list as uh, as all this stuff sort of plays out because I have a feeling this is sort of not the end of the conversation and and there could be some very interesting tangents that this story can ultimately uh, uh, take uh, and I suspect that uh, you're going to be intrigued with how that plays out and maybe you'd be involved in in some some form or shape of it. It's, you know, here's the thing: the game just keeps it, it won't go away, right? It just keeps coming back. So even if I wanted to not be involved, there's virtually no way it's, it's, it's back and it's back in a big way. And I just really want us to get to where we're, you know, why are we sports fans? We were sports fans, not to see who won the, the a court case. We want to see a team, you know, we want to see players. We want to see a youth Academy. That's been Beckham's thing is I want, he wants to have a, a, and we could have a great youth Academy of South Florida kids going in there. No, uh, no requirement to pay to be in this youth academy, which is different from any other youth group you would play for. So they've, they've got big ambitions. They've got big money. And um, we're excited by it being Beckham. It brings a, a, a not just a cachet, but it's attracted great people uh, in the ownership and in the front office and in the youth coaches. We want to see now, we want to see what's the team going to be. And that's that's the next step here. And uh, hopefully we can kind of get past our geographic challenges and, and put a great team out there that you're willing to drive to see because it doesn't matter really if, if the team's not very good, you know, who's going to sp- who's going to buy a ticket. And it's really hard down here. We're not like Cleveland. They just show up no matter Philadelphia, they show up to boo the team. We don't show up to boo. <laughs> we show up to cheer. And, you know, we don't, we can't be bothered with booing down here. So it's really now incumbent on them to deal with this, this start that they've had by, by putting the resource into, to players, getting the best players. Well, I, look, I appreciate this. This is a very, this has opened up the window to uh, uh, the story of the past uh, and uh, the present and uh, what we hope is going to be a very vibrant future, uh, potentially uh, a couple of different paths to that future, and uh, I appreciate your sort of being the locus for uh, for that uh, for that conversation. You also, though, the, the the sport of soccer hasn't left you very much, right? Because you've you've got a book project in in the works too. Do you want to tell our audience about that and and what the story about that is and what you're trying to do with it? Yeah, I wrote a wrote a novel. I didn't want to get into writing um, nonfiction, um, and part of me now is through our conversation here and just doing the research is maybe looking at doing something that would capture a South Florida history. But in lieu of that, I decided to write a, write a novel, a work of fiction. And it, and it really draws upon pretty much everything we've been, we've been talking about here. And, uh, I, uh, it's called the magnificent Marty Dale and I just completed it. So I'm now in the process of looking for a literary agent uh, or publisher 
And the book is about an Englishman who uh, comes to play his final season for kind of a third division team in a fictional city I call uh, Hesperides by the Sea. And it's a, we always had the reputation, you know, this from the NASL that, you know, the, the, the really good European players are just coming over here for one more payday and, you know, just kind of a, just an easy check. And in Fort Lauderdale, it was to come here for the, for the weather and the money. Uh, so that my book is based on an Englishman kind of trying to deal with some, a little bit of a George Best type, um, Paul Gascoigne type, who's kind of wasted his, his gifts and is, um, needs a fresh start. Uh, and, and ends up finishing his career uh, in in a, uh, South Florida, basically. So uh, that, that was um, it was fun to write because it allowed me to kind of kind of go back into uh, you know that that history that we've been we've been talking about. And I'm privileged really to have this opportunity. I really uh, it's my favorite subject. You probably t- can tell. <laughs> um, and uh, just you know trying to capture it in, in a, in a literary form um, and just kind of unearth different kinds of truths that, that fiction allows you versus nonfiction, nonfiction. The story is not always a happy ending, you know, because how many teams have, have we seen and unhappily down here? Um, I'm hoping the next one is a happy ending. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, I've, um, hopefully in a year or two, I'll, I'll have a, a book out there and I'll be involved in some, ex- to some extent with, writing about inner Miami as well. I'm probably looking at starting a, a, a blog of some site of some kind so that um, I can kind of weigh in a little bit on what's going on um, with this process. I, look, I think that that in addition to uh, your your novel would be would be excellent because uh, you have a, a wealth of history and have a, a, a longitudinal lens, shall we say, about uh, what's what's transpired in the past, some of which is directly applicable uh, and or lessons uh, either to be learned or not repeated or, frankly, good things that, you know, that, uh, you know, quote unquote, new management doesn't necessarily uh, know or appreciate. How can we uh, get in contact with you if, uh, say, there is a magic soccer literary agent out there or or others that want to perhaps uh, help you in that pursuit on Miami web address or Twitter or email, any, anything like that? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at uh, J-E-F-F-R-U-S-N-A-K. And I'm on Facebook as well. My just um, through Facebook, I could be contacted as well. Just uh, Jeff Rusnak. I'll just Google me. Um, there's not many Rusnaks out there, so uh, I should show up there. Well, fantastic. Well, you're number one in our book, and hopefully a few more new links from uh, from this episode once we have it uh, up and in podcast land. And, and Jeff, this has been um, uh, tremendous and and, and well timed too. I appreciate your uh, allowing me to. Uh, poke you gently into uh, going back in time as well as uh, sort of the scene set for uh, what's hopefully to come with pro soccer down in South Florida. This has been uh, really excellent. And I, uh, I hopefully not, not the, the last of our conversations around this topic. Well, a real, again, a, a real, a real pleasure. And uh, I love what you're doing with, with just your general take on capturing stories that, uh, that become lost. And, you know, we're of an age, I think, I safely say that uh, we're the ones who are the, the stewards of keeping that that history um, preserved, and 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 I think I, I, what I appreciate your terminology, the longitudinal part of this is, you know, the past is just it's always we're always adding to the past, and the past is is we're living in you know today is a result of everything that's come before us, and and these stories you know inform us and and enlighten us in in ways to do things better and. You know, believe me, with with Inner Miami, and we've been very clear. The, the people who have gone through this history down here is, 
we can help you. We have the institutional knowledge to help you not make the mistakes that have been made prior to us. And that's, that's, that hopefully, uh, I think they'll respect that they have so far. And, um, you know, this is, this, I didn't say this is the last chance It's never the last chance, but I think inner Miami is, is really the chance we have to make happen. Uh, it's the best chance that we have to really, uh, institutionalize, uh, the game for a long, long time down here. And, uh, so we're, I'm going to pull forward as, as best I can in, in, in any way I can, because I, I, I love the game and I, I want to see generations who sort of, you know, beyond me um, get that same experience that I've been uh, privileged to have living down here in, in South Florida. All right, well, we got to uh, stay tuned to this story. This is uh, literally uh, one that is unfolding uh, as we speak, and uh, it remains to be seen what happens with this franchise. But uh, as far as uh, we can tell, you know, Major League Soccer is depending on uh, the new Miami franchise to be uh, in place uh, for the beginning of the 2020 season, and that's uh, literally, you know, less than a year away. And uh, it's a clear uh, now uh, since uh, this conversation uh, and the approval by uh, all the authorities in Fort Lauderdale, at least, that uh, the construction and the clearance of all the uh, the old remnants of the old Lockhart Stadium are, are, are is underway, and uh, we uh, basically will see construction starting in the in a couple of months' time. We're recording this uh, around the first week of May, and I guess by uh, the middle of July, uh, building will start occurring in earnest uh, to get that uh, that stadium. Uh, up and running for hopefully a uh, probably a late spring start uh, in 2020. But the, uh, the the bigger intrigue, of course, is what's going to happen with the uh, development down in uh, in Freedom Park, or at least that's what they want to call it, uh, down in Miami proper. Is that going to happen? Uh, that is uh, clearly a uh, unsolved issue right now. A bunch of legal hurdles still yet to clear. It's very interesting. I think some people are already sort of surmising that uh, it may be more than two years in Lockhart Stadium in Fort Lauderdale. And perhaps maybe, if you can believe it, and as I was sort of hinting at and poking uh, Jeff uh, in our conversation, maybe winds up unwittingly becoming the permanent home of the team. Now, uh, it's all speculation, but it's interesting how history repeats itself. Again, this wouldn't be the first rodeo that uh, Major League Soccer or pro soccer generally has uh, played, if you will, when it comes to uh, domiciling a team uh, in pro soccer in uh, the South Florida area. Anyway, a story to watch. Uh, we try to be as current and uh, as up to speed as possible, and uh, we will absolutely revisit this uh, this conversation and this story uh, when the issues warrant and it fits our little genre uh, as appropriately. Uh, Jeff, uh, as you heard, uh, is shopping around a uh, a book proposal, a, a soccer novel. Uh, and arguably actually has uh, some nonfiction in him, as you can hear. Uh, and if you happen to be in the uh, book agent business or want to talk to Jeff about his uh, his story ideas, both fiction and let's hopefully say nonfiction, uh, you can reach him uh, on Twitter at Jeff Rusnak. That's J-E-F-F-R-U-S-N-A-K at Jeff Rusnak uh, on Twitter. And uh, I'm sure he'd be happy to hear from you, as we would as well. If you go to our website at, uh, I was going to tell, give our sponsors a web address. Why not? SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Use the promo code GoodSeats for 15% off all of your purchases. But 
After you've done that, of course, you want to go to our website. And that's, of course, say it with me, will you? GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Of course, that's where you're going to find our links to uh, various uh, things like our social media feeds. We're, of course, on Twitter at GoodSeatsStill. Uh, you'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us on Facebook. There's a page devoted to us. Uh, you can send us email either directly from the site or you can send it to us uh, just in a regular old email uh, at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And of course, if you go to the website, you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter. Uh, it is the place, the repository uh, to find all of our old episodes download them all or just listen to a few or, you know, however you want to, you know, share them with your friends, uh, do whatever you want. We're going to try to keep building out more stuff. We're going to have some, uh, some merch coming up in the, uh, in the weeks ahead and, uh, all kinds of other sort of fun, uh, pieces of, of memorabilia and, and interesting stuff to sort of keep you coming back. And, uh, but look, the, the, the podcast is the focus here. We try to keep it simple, have these great conversations. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, knock on wood, it's resonating with you, uh, wacky uh, listeners out there. And we appreciate uh, you joining us in this little wacky pursuit uh, along the way. We uh, can't do it without you. We certainly love your support. Please try all of our sponsors and uh, do so voluminously and regularly. And of course, by all means, if you're interested in the podcast industry yourself and you fancy yourself as uh, saying, hey, this handling guy, you know, he makes it sound so complicated, but I could do that, couldn't I? Well, I don't know. Why not? You know, give it a try. And our friends at Podfly Productions might just be the right people to kind of give you the what's what on how to do it and help you with all your production and editorial needs. And of course, our friend uh, Jerry Payne and his pals uh, at Podfly will be more than happy to help you out and uh, get you on your way. That's Podfly Productions. You can find them at podfly.net. All right. I am done for this week. I can't thank you enough for listening. Until we uh, speak to you again next week, the ticket window is now closed.